Would you stand with me in reverence for the reading of the Holy Scriptures? We're going to read from Amos chapter 9, verses 13 through 15. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper, and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. You may be seated. All right. Well, um, in 2010, I was just a year or so out of college and freshly into my first ministry job as a youth pastor, and I just kind of caught wind. I don't remember how exactly, through the rising possi- of the rising popularity and influence of a group of these sort of public intellectuals that were called uh, the New Atheists. I don't know if you remember that bunch. It was a group of thinkers launching a new wave of argument against theism and often against, uh, of course, against belief in God, but often specifically against Christianity uh, in particular. And they were writing from their perspectives of philosophers or journalists or scientists or whatever. And uh, they were making waves. They were making waves persuading lots of people Um, to leave behind their gods, leave behind their religions, leave behind their churches, and so I was curious about what they had to say. I've always felt that my Christianity uh, needed to be able to stand up to the strongest arguments against it, Um, and so I was intrigued to read a handful of the New Atheist books, consider their arguments, and so I read some Christopher Hitchens, a couple books by Sam Harris, and somewhere in there I read The God Delusion by um, evolutionary biologist Richard Dawkins. And it was a helpful and clarifying read, um, and I took notes all over the, I think I still have my copy back there in the office, um, took notes all over the margins with, you know, rebuttals and things to consider more deeply and stray ideas, and in the end, my conclusion was that Dawkins uh, was largely arguing against a straw man version of Jesus, a straw man version of Christianity in the Bible. Um, At least that was my take. But just, just a few months ago, in preparation for the series, I was reading this book called God of All Things by English pastor Andrew Wilson, and he pointed out something super interesting in the God delusion that I just totally didn't notice when I read it. He points out that there's this epigraph, and I'll, just, I'll, re- I'll quote Wilson here. He says, the epigraph, which appears before the contents page, is a quotation from the author Douglas Adams. And the quote is this, isn't it enough to see that a garden is beautiful? without having to believe that there are fairies at the bottom of it too. I take that you get his meaning there. He's, you know, so many Christians will argue from the beauty of creation and the world that, oh, this must have been designed by a good and powerful and creative and generous God. And Adams is simply saying, I mean, isn't it just enough for it to be beautiful without having to leap to these sort of fanciful ideas that, oh yeah, there's really a, a God or fairies in his instance behind this thing. Well, Wilson goes on to say this, no, gardens do not make us believe in fairies, but they do make us believe in another class of beings who offer a far closer analogy to belief in God than fairies ever could. Gardens make us believe in beings whose design, whose creative activity and ongoing care are responsible for the land resembling a beautiful garden rather than a wasteland or a jungle or an overgrown weed-infested mess. Gardeners. Gardeners. 
Um, without knowing it, Douglas Adams and Richard Dawkins have taken our belief in a powerful, intelligent, caring designer whom we cannot currently see and tried to debunk it by referring to something, a beautiful garden that requires belief in a powerful, intelligent, caring designer who we cannot currently see. <laughs> I find that pretty funny. But more than that, more than that mere fact, gardens have an important function all across the biblical narrative as images of peace and of flourishing and of restoration and ultimately of the divine presence, blessing, and grace. Um, and it's true to say each time now, in the here and now, year 2023, Portland, Oregon, that we encounter a beautiful, well-maintained garden, we are invited to receive it as both a gift from God and then to reconsider the significance of the biblical gardens through this one particular garden that we happen upon. And so today, we're continuing in our series, God of Every Good Thing, uh, by considering something I have never tried to preach before, which is gardens. <laughs> gardens. I told the band this morning, this all seemed like a really good idea like two months ago when I was outlining this series, and now I got to this and I'm like, a sermon about gardens, okay. But I, 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 think, we, I think we cracked it. I think we found a way in, so we'll, we'll find out. Um, First, what, what is a garden? What do I mean by that? Well, Mer Merriam-Webster gives the following definitions. They say it's A, a plot of ground where herbs, fruits, flowers, or vegetables are cultivated. B, a rich, well-cultivated region. C, a container, such as a window box, planted with usually a variety of small plants. Or D, a public recreation area or park, usually ornamented with plants and trees. Another definition I found was a planned space, usually outdoors, set aside for the cultivation, display, and enjoyment of plants and other forms of nature. In short, I, I, I want to think about gardens in the widest possible way that that last definition kind of gets at. Um, a garden as any space where creation, particularly plants, um, are intentionally arranged and cared for for the benefit and blessing of people. And we can apply this to the tiniest spaces like these definitions get at, like one single potted plant kind of captures that. You've taken the, the natural thing and you've put it somewhere with intentionality and specificity so you can bring it inside your home or whatever. From one individual potted plant or a raised bed all the way up to a whole yard at a home or even a garden city street like Portland has so many of or a large park or an orchard or a vineyard or even a huge farm. Someone who has taken God's good creation and, and cultivated and arranged it so that it can be of even better benefit to the people who are around it. Got it? It's a garden. Widest possible definition. Part, Portland is a garden-rich city, if you didn't know. Uh, we've mentioned this before, even just in the last few weeks, but according to one article, I didn't know this, Portland has developed over 92,000 acres of green spaces in the city with a connected system of trails and parks. 92,000 acres in the city. So many of the streets integrate these lush trees and foliage into the design. And in this city, you're never far from beautiful parks and gardens, be it Laurelhurst Park or Mount Tabor, uh, the Japanese Garden, uh, the Grotto, Washington Park, the Rose Garden, just on and on and on, these immaculately beautiful gardens. We're just outside the city. You have the farms of Savi's Island, the trails of the Columbia River Gorge. You have wine country with countless rolling vineyards and on and on and on, more farms as well. According to Genesis, as we've mentioned, a garden was humanity's first home. Um, and today, gardens are echoes of that home. 
And they're full of tangible gifts from our Heavenly Father, and they're full of reminders and images and metaphors for what he's up to in our world. Think of just all the agricultural metaphors that Jesus employed when he was teaching. The question is, as it is with all of these things, will we develop the eyes to see the gifts that these gardens are here, um, and will we see them as another point of connection to the giver of these gifts, the God of the Bible? And so for a way into this idea, this theme, I want to consider our experience of gardens in the here and now in relationship to three biblical gardens, the Garden of Eden, the Garden of Gethsemane, and the Garden of New Jerusalem. Um, so with that as the roadmap, let's pray, and then we'll, we'll jump in. Father, it, it's easy to, once again, ignore the beauty that's around us. Even in Portland specifically, Lord, for all its problems, and there are many, for all its disheartening things, and there are many, Lord, it is a city of, of, of natural beauty. Um, gardens are all around us. And these gardens, Lord, they're, they're not, just, um, not just nice little things, but, but they're pointers. They are signposts to some of the deepest realities that our faith speaks of, Lord. And so we want to be the kinds of people uh, who have these eyes to see. We want to be the kinds of people who enjoy the gifts that are ahead of us, Lord, but don't just stop there. We, we take it on to praise and adoration of the God who is behind all these things ultimately. Lord, uh, I know this can be, this sounds probably like a little bit of an abstract biblical teaching, but we just pray that um, your truth would shine forth, your scripture would uh, be illuminated, Lord, and that we would walk out of here uh, ready to, to see you, to obey you, to follow you more closely. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, first is gardens and Eden. And I'll just read for you Genesis 2, 8 through 14. We read this a few weeks ago, but I'll read it again. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. And there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon, the one that flowed around the whole of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bdellium and onyx stones are there. The name of the second river is Jehon. It's the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. We'll just stop there. So the home that God strategically guarded, I mean, I just love this idea. He's created this whole creation in this picture of he specifically developed this beautiful garden to place first Adam and then Adam and Eve inside that's perfectly suited. It's full of beauty. It's full of wonder. It's full of, like, just perfect architecture for humanity to flourish and delight in. And the gifts of that ar archetypical garden that we talked about several weeks ago are still here with us, and I just, well, just review those as we think about this. What was Eden about? Well, first, it was about temple, the garden as a meeting place with the presence of God. 
all of creation served that function, and then Eden's this microcosm of it where he's not, God not only prepared a space suitable for humanity to enjoy and to flourish and to have life, but it's also the space where God would come commune with them as well. He made a place that was fit for him to have relationship with these people. Eden was the place where God walked among his people. It was a place of his presence. Andrew Wilson again says this, Eden is a place of life and love and harmony because God lives there. The first garden is a temple, and this is, this is where it gets interesting. I think we mentioned this a few weeks ago, but from now on, all temples will be gardens, and that might sound like a stretch until we st- study the design of the tabernacle and the temple in detail, which since they're lengthy and a bit repetitive, most of us don't do, but they're full of garden imagery pointing us to the verdant, lush, life-giving bounty of the gardener who lives there. He's, if, go read those texts. Go read in the Torah. The, the architectural designs for the tabernacle and then the temple are, are meant to make the physical space of the temple look like a garden. Did you know that? So the Garden of Eden itself becomes this little image of the temples, or rather the temples become images of the Garden of Eden. It works both ways. That's not by coincidence. It has to do with the function of this garden. In gardens today, even, so that's true, that was true then, but today, Christians ought to be reminded of the availability of the presence of the Spirit of God in us. If the, if the garden was the place where he communed, God, God of the universe communed with his people, now, when we find ourselves in gardens, we ought to let our theological imagination run back to that first garden and, and remind us of all these glorious truths that we have this side of the cross, that God's presence is available The the Spirit of God is, in fact, within us. Gardens today are invitations to recognize Him and to commune with Him, not not just when you're in a garden or near a potted plant or something like that, but everywhere, everywhere. If the gardens, if, if the garden was the place where people encounter the presence of God, may they serve as reminders of us today that that presence is now available in and through us everywhere, everywhere. But gardens number two were also images of partnership. The garden was an invitation to partnership with God. Eden was given to Adam and Eve in a good state, a very good state. But remember this, they were tasked to develop its raw potential into something even greater in partnership with God. It wasn't as though Eden was perfect and no, no changes were meant to be made. That's, what, that's the exact logic that lies behind. Tend the earth, keep it, subdue it, cultivate it, make it even better. He gave them this beautiful starting place that was like, you, you enjoy this? Take it out even further. Take it out even further. Even to the ends of the earth had the fall not occurred. So every garden, you, you, you could even say, um, is a collaboration between the God who created and sustains every plant. You know that, right? God creates and sustains every plant that exists. You know, we've said this before, but you know, you you have an equation, enough sunlight, enough water, enough nutrients in the soil, the plant will grow. And yes, that's true. God in his mercy has made that a reliable process for us, but it's still him who's ultimately holding that process together, making it reliable for us. He is the one who makes it grow. He's the one that sustains it all. But... But if he's the God who created and sustains every plant and every plot of land, but he also still empowers people who work to design and arrange and subdue and tend and cultivate it all towards a particular end. If you take Laurelhurst Park, it's beautiful. But if people just stopped, you know, Portland uh, Parks just stops taking care of it, 
it would just turn into a mess. It would just turn into a mess. You give it enough time, it would take a while for that one, but it would just turn into a weed-infested nightmare that's unusable for people. Every garden continues to be a collaboration between the sustainer, provider, creator God and people who are tasked with taking those raw materials and making something even more beautiful out of it. Does that make sense? So in gardens today, that was true of Eden, that's true today, we are reminded of the privilege of bearing God's image and getting to work alongside him to advance his good purposes in the world. This goes for gardening itself, of course. Every time that we you know, nurture the plants around us, we're, we're doing this little act of partnership with him, but it even more profoundly points us to our role uh, in all the good things that we do. It's not just strict, this, this principle doesn't just apply strictly to gardening. It applies to whatever good work you do in your life, and how much more so even to the role of bringing the good news of Jesus to the ends of the earth and deeper everywhere. That is a work, as maybe our chief work right now, of partnering with God to advance his purposes in the world. So temple, partnership. A third is that the garden was provision of sustenance. Eden was a place where God gave, did you see that quote, every plant good for food. It contained the life-sustaining nourishment of good food for the humans to live and thrive off of. God in his wisdom designed humans to eat food. That's how our bodies propagate. That's how they survive. That's how they replace their cells and so on and so forth. He, so God creates food for them in Eden to eat and to sustain and to enjoy. Gardens and farms today are still the places, though, you know, in a city, it's easy, it's harder in Portland, but in cities, it's easy to just totally disconnect our imaginations from, like, the process. It's like, well, I don't know, I just go to Fred Meyer and pick something up, and I assume, you know, we, like, my kids probably think that, like, I don't know, a package of ham is just, like, something that is grown in an Amazon lab or something, you know, which, horrifically, that probably will be the case before too long. Um, but gardens and farms today are still the places where this happens. They are the places where God provides for our physical nourishment, again, in partnership with human laborers. I love this quote from, from Wendell Berry. If you don't know Wendell Berry, he's uh, from Kentucky. He's this uh, sort of, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, environmentalist, uh, activist almost, writer, thinker, but he's a farmer. He's a farmer, and he's arguing for the humane uh, treatment of the world, motivated by his Christian convictions, that he's, he's a big, he speaks out against, a lot against like big factory farming and that kind of thing, but he's a poet, he's a novelist. I'm actually going to, I think I'm going to lead a, a Wendell Berry novel this summer, uh, if anybody wants to join me, um, for a book club. But anyway, he, brilliant guy, very multi-talented, um, but here's, here's what Berry has to say in, in The Art of the Commonplace. He says, odd as I am sure it Odd as I am, sure, it will appear to some, I can think of no better form of personal involvement in the cure of the environment than that of gardening. A person who's growing a garden, if he is growing it organically, is improving a piece of the world. He is producing something to eat, which makes him somewhat independent of the grocery business, but he's also enlarging for himself the meaning of food and the pleasure of eating. Love that little quote. So in gardens today, in Garden State, Christians ought to be reminded of God's loving care of and provision for our physical needs. And then there's a fourth, probably more than these four, but these are the four we're going to stick with today. Garden as a gift of aesthetic joy or delight. 
Remember, the name Eden itself means delight. That's, that's instructive to the purpose of why he created this garden. I, I, I like uh, thinker Joe Rigney in his book, Strangely Bright. He writes this. I'll just quote it at length. He's talking about the, the command given to Adam. He says, notice this. The first command is not a prohibition. The first command is the endorsement. You may surely eat of every tree. God essentially says to Adam, look at these trees. Beautiful, aren't they? That's why I gave you eyes to see such beauty in my world. Wait until you taste them. They'll blow you away. That's why I gave you a tongue to taste and see the goodness of my bounty. You may eat from every one of them. All of them are yours for food, except one. There is one no in this world full of yes. Eat, drink, be merry. Taking this enthusiastic exhortation as a model, here we see the divine endorsement of sensible pleasures, that is, things that we enjoy through our bodily senses. Things we see, the brilliant purples, reds, and oranges of a sunset, the diamond blanket of stars arrayed every night, the panoramic glory of a fertile valley seen from the top of a mountain, the majesty of a well-cultivated garden in early summer. Things we hear, the steady crashing of waves on a shoreline, the songs of birds in early spring after the long sideline of winter, the soul-stirring harmony of strings and woodwinds and brass and percussion, the innocent refreshment of the laughter of children, Things we smell, the fragrance of roses, the aroma of pine, the delightful odor of cedar, the scent of a home-cooked meal. Things we taste, the warm sweetness of chocolate chip cookies, the puckering sour of a glass of lemonade, the heavenly savoriness of a plate piled high with bacon, the surprising yet delightful bitterness of herbs, the piercing saltiness of well-seasoned meat, and things we touch, the cool smoothness of cotton bedsheets, the warm comfort of a wool blanket, the reassuring strength of a hug from a friend, the soft tenderness of a kiss from your spouse. All of these are gifts from God for our enjoyment. God specifically tells Adam these are good for food and they are beautiful to the eye. God made them that way on purpose because he is generous towards us. There's a really interesting book I read uh, actually just a few months ago uh, by a Christian musician named Andrew Peterson. His book is called God God of the Garden. It's kind of this memoir about his life, but oddly, like, also a memoir about his relationship to trees. It was really strange. I'm not sure why I picked it up, but I did, and it was good. It was good. And at the end of it, he says this, at the very least, I hope this book helps you see how wonderful trees are. That's it. They're all around us and easy to overlook, but they were made by God to be either good for fruit or simply pretty to look at. Right there in Genesis 1, God made trees and validated beauty for beauty's sake. Take the time to allow your eyes to be pleased by their drooping branches and shaggy trunks, their white petals in springtime, their blaze in autumn. This is a pure gift straight from the mind of Jesus. Next time you eat an apple or a pecan, taste and see that the Lord is good. So if we have eyes to see, gardens serve today as opportunities for us to experience glimpses or fragments of these perfect blessings that were there in Eden. They are not lost, not completely. They can still serve as reminders of God's presence, of our call to partnership with Him, of the sustenance that they provide, and of just the pure delight that they are meant to inspire within us. That's gardens in Eden. Number two, gardens in Gethsemane. Gardens in Gethsemane. There are other notable gardens, but this is probably one of the ones that we all know uh, by name, one of the few biblical gardens. 
Matthew 26, verse 36, starting in verse 36, says this. Jesus went, th- went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled, and he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. So Gethsemane was a garden. It was an olive garden full of olive trees. Uh, Gethsemane itself means oil press. And this was ultimately not a garden of delight, although if, if maybe if Jesus had been in a better mood, he may have been able to kind of see, see it. But this is a garden of suffering, isn't it, for Jesus? It's a garden of rest for the disciples who are kind of blissfully unaware and just sleeping on the job as Jesus has asked them to pray. But for Jesus, it's a place where he goes to suffer. He goes to pray to his Father in a moment of extreme agony as Jesus is preparing to pay the ultimate price. Why? Well, as the story goes, it wasn't just, the biblical story doesn't just have Eden and the continuation of Eden. This paradise was lost. There was the rebellion of Adam and Eve against their good and generous creator God. Adam and Eve rebelled against God in the first garden. They were given unfathomable abundance with one restriction, and they failed the test. They failed the test, and as a result, sin and sickness and death and evil and injustice all entered the world. But God would not leave this fractured relationship as it was. The whole story of the Bible winds its way towards Jesus who would undo what was done. And the story uh, where, you know, we enter the final chapter of Jesus actually putting these things right takes place in a garden, the Garden of Gethsemane. This was where Jesus bore the unfathomable weight of the coming separation from God that he was about to experience on the cross, the result of bearing the sins of the world not to mention the the mere physical torture of the cross itself. So like Adam and Eve, who were given so much, given so much, and they were given a test. Enjoy it all, but just remember there's this one that you don't partake of. And they failed. They failed the test of obedience. This time, the new man, the new Adam, Jesus himself, the Son of God in human flesh, he comes into a garden and he faces a test. Will it be, Jesus, your will or the Father's will. Your human desire to avoid this pain, very natural, fair desire to avoid this pain and this suffering, this cosmic suffering that none of us can really fathom. Or obedience, obedience. And this time the test was passed. This time the test was passed in this garden, Jesus steals himself and he commits himself to the will of the Father and he decides to go to do what was necessary to redeem and purchase all of humanity back for himself. It was this act of faithfulness in this garden in Gethsemane that led to his crucifixion, his death, and his resurrection, which grants his faithfulness and his righteousness, his passing of the test to us. It invites us into, back into this Eden-esque relationship with God once again where God doesn't even just walk with us in the cool of the day in the garden, but he comes and makes his home within, our, within us, within us, something even deeper. So, 
See Jesus' words to the thief on the cross. This is in Luke 23, starting in 39. One of the criminals who were hanged with who were hanged, railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you're under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we're receiving the due reward for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Jesus said to the man, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Do you know that that word paradise means walled garden? Walled garden. It's an Edenic image once again. You will be brought back into the garden with God, this garden of delight and sustenance and perfect connection with the presence of God. So if we have the eyes to see, I believe gardens serve They ought to serve as reminders of the faithfulness and the loving sacrifice of Jesus to bring us home. When we enjoy a garden, we can can consider the fact that we were not the ones that had to go bear this in Gethsemane and then ultimately the cross, but we get to be the beneficiaries of Jesus' faithful, loving sacrifice on our behalf. But that ties into the promise that he makes to the thief on the cross, and we'll we'll flesh it out here in this last one, Gardens and the New Jerusalem in Revelation 22. I'll read these these verses. This is the, the last chapter of the Bible. So the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. And they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. And they will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. I think it's safe to say all of us probably understand Revelation is a deeply symbol-laden book, even just this idea that the night will be gone and there's no need for the sun. I don't know that we're meant to take that literally. Night, sim- night, night symbolized danger. There's another passage earlier uh, in the same broader section where it talks about the sea will be no more. And I don't think it's saying the beauty of oceans won't be there in the new creation, but Seas were the other big image of danger. It was so dangerous to go out on a boat deep into the water. Uh, There was nothing like it. So all these kind of images of danger being gone. I don't know that the sun will not exist because God is so bright. It's just saying we don't need the sun. We don't need another source of light because God himself will be that for us forever and ever. So the images are complicated and, you know, there's all kinds of views of how we're meant to interpret those. But I think, without mistake, it's clear to see the picture that Revelation 21 and 22 gives us of, of the, final, the, you know, the final consummation of all things, what we wait for, Jesus to come back and to finally put all things right. It's this picture of a new garden, a new garden with a city, a new garden that interweaves a city. And I, I, Portland has always been an image of that for me because it's such a gardenous city, it's such a green city. Uh, but, you know, perfected Portland, dialed up to the ninth degree, and so on and so forth, the image of this garden city 
where there will be healing of all that was lost and broken in Eden. The picture that we get has this picture of restored intimacy. There is God with them, wiping away every tear from their eye. He will be their God. They will be their people. They will be his people. There's the partnership again. There's the sustenance in life, eternal, abundant life that will never be lost. And of course, all these images that are, that are meant to, to stir up this idea of just delight. Why does God need to make trees and all this beauty and these fruits and all these amazing things? Couldn't he just, you know, make us in the new heaven where we don't need food, we don't need, ap- we don't need trees to sustain us? He could, but he's still the God who wants to give us delight and joy through the means that he's producing So I think if we have the eyes to see, gardens today serve to stir up our hopes and stir up our hopes for the promises of the life to come with God. They prepare us for life in the great garden city of New Jerusalem where God will walk with us again. All the things that we see through shattered, you know, through shattered lenses and in broken pieces and, you know, half-formed, will be there in full. Every chance that we have to encounter a garden in this life is a chance to long, to reignite that longing for this day that's coming when this new garden comes in all of its glory, with all of its benefits and blessings, the chief of which is the presence of God in our midst. Three gardens. Three gardens that, that each lend, uh, lend, lend a, a lens toward our experiences of gardens in the here and now. Ones that each uh, invite us into deeper reflection every time we're observing the beauty of a well-curated natural space. So in conclusion, this might be, I, I don't think I've ever given this application uh, at a church before, but I will this time. It feels appropriate. Go spend some time in gardens. Get outside. Go where God's power and promises and man's humble efforts combine. Find some time to just sit and to look. Pray and worship and hope with your eyes open, taking in what's there. Maybe that's once a day. Maybe your season of life, that's once a week. Maybe that's once a month. Maybe that's once a quarter. I don't know. But find some time to go get out there and see and to let it stir up your your theological imagination and to just enjoy it for what it is. It's a gift sitting there for you. Receive it, enjoy it, delight in it. Chase that delight back up to your, your God, the giver of all these good things. Wendell Berry, uh, He's, he's been taking solitary walks through his farm in Kentucky on the Sabbath most of his life. So every Sunday he, he uh, does these long, you know, by himself walks through, through their farm. And, uh, and those walks have inspired tons of poetry. He has this uh, amazing, now a lot of them are collected in this big, thick poetry collection called Sabbath Poems. Um, and those, the poetry is inspired by the things he sees on those walks. As he's seeing those things, and then he's reflecting on God and creation and all the stuff. And one of his Sabbath poems says this. This is the whole poem. It's very brief. Surely it will be for this. The red bud, pink, the wild plum white, yellow, trout lilies in the morning light, the trees, the pastures turning green. On the river, quiet at daybreak, the reflections of the trees as in another world, 
lie across from shore to shore. Yes, here is where they will come, the dead, when they rise from the grave. He sees it. He sees it. Or we could look at Amos 9 that Jeff read for us to sum this all up, 13 through 15. This is Amos uh, prophesying about this day that's coming when God is going to put all things right for his people. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. They shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on the land and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, said the Lord your God. Gardens are a gift and they are a sign of more gifts to come. Amen? Let's worship. First, let's pray.